This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, leading up to our last provincial election in this province, I mean, housing, affordability, all of that was just such a huge topic. It still is. But at that time, it just it was so intense. And people were saying, like, the government needs to do something. A government needs to do something. And you could argue that inaction is one of the big reasons why BC Liberals are no longer in power when it seemed like there was going to be a cakewalk for them, right, to win re-election back then. So the NDP government said they were going to do something. Well, Finance Minister Carol James announced a speculation tax. And the rollout of this thing, to say rough, would be mild because it was bumpy. People had too many questions. There was not enough information. There was all this concern about this. But now it has been implemented, and we've all filled out the forms, right? I think they will find out what the exact number is for the uptake on that. But the vast majority of British Columbia to the homeowners filled out these forms. So momentarily, we're going to find out the numbers. How much money have they collected? Who is paying the speculation tax? Do they live here in BC? Do they live in Canada? Where is the money coming from? Are they foreign buyers? Are they Canadian buyers? What is the deal? All of that information is being released by Finance Minister Carol James this morning. In just a couple of minutes, we'll have those details for you. But for our hot question of the day today, we wanted to ask your opinion of the speculation tax. Earlier this year, the government had said they expect to collect $115 million from it just this year. Do you think the speculation tax is working for BC? Do you think, yes, it's helpful, or no, it's a cash grab? That's our hot question of the day. Uh, weigh in. You can email me, simi at cknw.com, but check it out online at cknw at simi sarah 980 or call our buzz line with your comments on this too, 604-331-2899. Well, we can now tell you about those numbers about the speculation tax. Finance Minister Carol James this hour releasing information about the speculation and vacancy tax. And she says it is working the way it was intended. And remember, it was brought in to try to tackle housing affordability. And it was announced, and then we waited months to get details. And when the details first came out, there were questions. And then even when they tried to roll it out, To say it was bumpy would be a bit of an understatement, but it is now in place. And according to the finance minister, 99.8% of British Columbians are not paying the tax. And she's also saying that the 8% drop in housing prices that we've seen can be attributed to the speculation in housing tax. And I know there'll be a lot of debate on that, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So how much money has been collected? $115 million so far this year. Government says that is going into a housing initiatives account, which communities can put uh, towards new housing projects. Who is paying the speculation and vacancy tax? Well, as of September 3rd, uh, the the people who are paying, 4,621 of those people are foreign owners. 3,060 are what's called satellite families. So I guess they come and go from here. 1,519 of them are Canadians who live outside of BC. And 2,362 are BC residents. 221 are listed as other, such as uh, properties held through corporations and trusts, maybe with multiple owners or things like that. So if you're looking for BC residents who are paying the speculation and vacancy tax, people who live in this province, it's 2,362 people here in BC. So 
Does that say that the speculation tax is working? Like, are you surprised when you hear that number? Did you think more people in BC were going to be paying it? And get your thoughts in on this. You can email me or you can call us on our buzz line 604-331-2899. But right now, let's talk to Tom Davidoff, who is an economics professor at UBC Sutter School of Business. Tom, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Okay, now that you've got these preliminary numbers, what do you think? Is this tax doing what it's supposed to be doing? I think so. Uh, It's raising revenue. Uh, Prices have come down. Uh, Rents have stopped growing as fast as... Now, in terms of prices, we also have uh, the stress early, which could have had an impact, uh, lingering effects of higher tax and empty homes. So did this tax do all the work? Uh, Probably not, but I think it's that there are more uh, locals... uh, and afford homes than there would be without the tax. Right. When you. $1 million dollars real money uh, that the gets. Right. When you look at the, the breakdown of the people who are actually paying the tax, and I found this interesting too, because there's lots of concern that people in BC were going to be kind of unfairly, you know, punished by this 2,362 BC residents paying the tax. What do you think of that number? Well, first of all, I want to go back a little bit, and this isn't necessarily a politically popular, I don't know that it's unfair for a BC resident to pay this tax. If you're fortunate enough to have uh, where people can't afford to live at all, where they make a living, I don't that much you know what? what your nationality or provincial hey, status Tom, is. Tom, you know what we're going to do? We're going to call you right back because your phone oh. is cutting in and out. You're saying uh, really I'm good sorry. stuff and we can't sure. hear you properly. So we're just sure. going to pause, press well, pause I, here for a second and we're sure. going to call okay. Tom back and get a better line for him because he's saying all this really good stuff that I want to hear what it is that he's saying. But you know what? And I'm sure it was irritating for you listening to that as well. It was cutting in and out. But we're talking to uh, Tom Davidoff about the speculation and vacancy tax. And while we're just getting him back on the line, I just want to remind you that this is part Part of our hot question of the day today. Now that you've gotten some of this information about the amount of money it's bringing in, uh, who is actually paying the tax, 2,362 BC residents, uh, 4,621 foreign owners, 1,519 Canadians who live outside of BC. And so we're talking like a couple of thousand people here in BC are paying the tax. Does that change your opinion of it or not? Do you think it's working? And that's what we're talking about with Tom, who we have back on the line with us. Okay, let's try this again. So do you, you looked at that number, 2,362 BC yeah. residents. Do you think that's a fair amount? I do. I think these are probably mostly, not entirely, affluent BC residents. But of course, it's only two-tenths of the... So, uh, you know, 998 out of 1,000 uh, BC residents don't pay the tax. Right. And that was it was designed to do, though? Do you think, like, we? what was it designed to do? Well, I think, in my mind, when I created the BC Housing Affordability Fund, which population tax rips off of, the idea was, if you're going to buy property in a place where it's very hard for people to make a living, you've got to contribute to taxes just like everybody else does. We have very low property tax rates, very high income tax rates. And that means uh, people who want uh, vacation homes or what have you uh, are in a position to outbid the local workforce. And we chose that with a poorly designed tax system. And this fixes an important problem. Right. But you know, there were also questions about where this applied and where this didn't apply. And now yeah. that we've seen where it's working, do you think maybe it will apply elsewhere? Like, look, it doesn't apply in Whistler. And a lot of people are wondering, why didn't it apply in Whistler? 
Well, Whistler is such a tricky case because to say, oh, we don't want people who are rich from outside of uh, B.C. Uh, owning property in Whistler, I don't know about that because the whole point of Whistler is to have rich people from all over the place uh, support the tourism industry. Uh, on the other hand, it's hard for the local workers uh, to find a place to live. So, you know, tourist places are kind of tricky. And uh, I think that's something with which uh, the province and municipalities struggle. Right. So we thought, I think when I originally heard this, there was this perception that more people were going to be impacted by this in BC that are actually impacted. What do you think this tells us about the housing market? Well, I think it tells us that there really was and has been an issue of people who don't make a living here uh, buying property and having some impact on uh, prices and rents. And it shows that reforming taxes can both capture tax revenue uh, and improve affordability for locals. Right. So it do you, are you surprised then that other jurisdictions haven't thought more about imposing something like this? Well, uh, I think we have it particularly hard here because D.C. is such a great place to have money, but a tricky place to make money. You know, a city like Ontario, uh, it's a bit easier to make a living. But watch the news wires today. And I think in light of D.C.'s uh, presumed success with these numbers, you're going to see one of the big political parties make an announcement on this subject today. Oh, really? Okay. So when you say presumed success, is that what you would call this? You'd look at this and say, all right, this tax did what it was supposed to do. I think it did. We, we, when we put forward our plan, we thought about $100 million, and we thought there'd be some transition of units from uh, people who don't live and work here to people who do. I think the evidence from housing prices and rents is that's happened, and it uh, looks like about $100 million bucks a year was a reasonable uh, prediction. So, you know, I think the tax has done what it was supposed to do. There's been minimal impact on B.C. residents. I'm guessing the two-tenths of a percent of B.C. residents who had to pay are quite affluent. So I suspect uh, the uh, federal entities that are going to riff on this today with an announcement uh, saw these numbers and uh, liked what they saw. I'm guessing they had an early look because otherwise they'd look like idiots if it had been bad news today. (laughs) That's so true. You sound (laughs) like you might know which federal parties are going to be talking about this today. Well, I I think it rhymes with hybrid, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to say anything, (laughs) so I'm going to keep it mysterious. Uh, Aren't they talking about, though, an increase in the foreign buyer's tax, which, as we know here in B.C., these are two different things. They are. And, you know, when I came up uh, with with some help with the B.C. Housing Affordability Fund, which became the speculation tax, what was key to me was don't target nationality, because the issue is, are you using this house to make a living in or are you using it uh, as a vacation home when other people can't afford to live and work here? To me, it's inappropriate to look at nationality personally as an immigrant. Uh, I think we should be welcoming to people uh, from other countries. But I think it's also reasonable to say that if you own property in a place where it's hard uh, to find property, you have to contribute to the tax system. Right. So it is two different taxes, though, here in B.C. It is. And I think, uh, fortunately, at the federal level, they're looking at the speculation tax, which, you know, I I think they are going to link it to nationality, but it really could be linked more to the tax system, which is what's relevant. It's are you a taxpayer not are you, in my opinion, a Canadian passport holder that's relevant. So the things that BC is doing then, you're saying, is getting some national attention. It is. And so when you ask, should we interpret these numbers favorably, I can't imagine but that the federal liberals saw the numbers, liked them, and decided to make the announcement in light of them. Hmm. All right. Listen, Tom, thanks very much for your time on this. 
Oh, it's a real pleasure, Simi. Thank you for thank you for having me. That's Tom Davidoff, economics professor at UBC Sutter School of Business, who's talked much about taxation and housing affordability. It is one of the busiest ports in all of North America, the busiest in Canada. More than two point four million containers flow in and out every year. But how many of those containers at Delta Port are actually getting a thorough security check or even a passing look? The mayor of Delta and the police chief there say nowhere near enough, actually. Police Chief Neil Dubord says there is not enough enforcement for the number of containers that come through. 2.4 2.4 million containers come into Delta Port, and currently about a half of 1% of those get checked annually. 0.5%. That is nothing in comparison to 2.4 million containers going through. Meanwhile, Delta Mayor George Harvey says that leaves things open to criminal activity. So if you're an organized crime member, it's pretty good odds to take a container through Delta Port when only 0.5% only get inspected. All right, so they're highlighting the fact that, as you heard there, only about 0.5% of the containers at Delta Port get a second look. Yeah, you heard that right. Now, there used to be a designated police force known as Ports Canada Police. That program was cut 20 years ago. And then in 2015, a special RCMP task force that also did this job lost its funding. Now it's up to local police forces to respond to any problems there. The Port of Vancouver does have its own security. But does any of this sound like we're doing a good job of policing what comes in and out of the country in containers? Well, the problem actually has been highlighted before in Peter German's reports on money laundering. You may remember those, of course. Those reports are called Dirty Money. He's also a former RCMP deputy commissioner. I had a chance to talk to him more about this story. Peter, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this story today. Now, when you hear these numbers from the city of Delta, that less than 1% of containers at Delta Port are getting a second look, does that surprise you? Uh, It doesn't surprise me. It is disturbing, and it is something that we highlighted on the uh, second Dirty Money report. That that much, I guess, the lack of security is that great at Delta Port? Like, that's pretty scary. Well, it's not just Delta Port. Uh, We're talking about ports in Canada. Uh, We no longer have a ports police force. There used to be a National Harbors Board police, which became Ports Canada police. They were abolished uh, for a while, the ports we're uh, subsidizing uh, police officers from local jurisdictions. Uh, here, that has been pulled back, and essentially uh, you have security uh, working the ports now. So it's not just Delta, but Delta is certainly uh, a large container port, but you've got Vancouver, you've got Surrey, you've got a number of locations. So then what do we expect? We expect people are just telling the truth about those containers that come to our country? Well, and it's, it's also uh, containers leaving our country. We have a certain responsibility for what we send out of this country, and there's even less being checked outbound because the priority for CDSA is inbound. Uh, and uh, you've got the statistics. Right. So the fact that you've already highlighted this, that we don't have a dedicated ports police, why, Peter, do you think that this doesn't get more attention? Why isn't this a bigger concern? Well, you know, we've got lots of concerns, I suppose, and where does it stack in, in order of priority? Uh, certainly from a law enforcement perspective, I think this is a, a real concern. And as we look at the movement of uh, drugs, uh, particularly in the case of Vancouver between British Columbia and Asia and Asian and British Columbia, this is significant. And we know in the organized crime world, 
that a lot of what's referred to as tailgating takes place, where you've got legal cargo that will also have some illegal commodities added into it. And when you've got all those containers, uh, inevitably, you're going to have a lot of uh, illegal cargo tailgating. And we really don't have anybody paying a lot of attention to this. Is there, do you think, like, will it, would a little bit of enforcement go a long way here, do you think? Or do we need a lot of enforcement? Well, there are a lot of options. I mean, you can look at the United States model, which I highlighted in, in part two of Dirty Money. And, and let's say Seattle, they have a dedicated port police for the airport and for the ports. There are other options. You could have integrated units, which is the way we went after Ports Canada was abolished. But like I say, the funding for that uh, disappeared. And so really now it's the police force of jurisdiction, Delta Police, Vancouver Police, Surrey RCMP, that are expected to keep an eye on the ports. Plus, from time to time, cases will bring the organized crime units to the ports. But, you know, it's not where they're focused. It's not where they, they work. And so do you see any appetite, though, to improve the situation out there? Well, certainly in terms of, I was quite pleased with the reception of our reports by the provincial government, but this is not simply a provincial concern. It's municipal, provincial, it's federal. Um, so, I, you know, I'm probably not the best barometer of, you know, change. Uh, I'm really highlighting an issue, a problem, and mm-hmm. I saw it connected to money laundering and organized crime. Well, yeah, let's talk about the issues that you highlighted that in your reports on money laundering. They clearly, I mean, got a lot of attention, right? People were very concerned about the issues that you brought to our attention. Uh, what has happened since then? Do you think enough has been done uh, about those issues that you raised? Yeah, so we're talking two reports. The first report on the casinos, as you know, the Attorney General adopted all 48 mm-hmm. recommendations. And my understanding is, and I do know, that the province is moving towards implementation. It doesn't happen overnight, obviously, but they are uh, working away on it. Part two, uh, I made various findings, and we also have Maureen Maloney's report, which dealt with regulatory reform. Um, you know, there are a lot of recommendations out there. Uh, government's got its priorities. Um have we seen very much yet? No. Um, is it in the works? Uh, hopefully. And uh, those are, you know, again, probably not the best questions to ask me. <laughs> we, we've talked a lot about the opioid overdose crisis here, the concern about the drug supply and all of that. Uh, can we fix that if we can't fix this port situation? Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think we're talking two different issues, but there is a connection. Uh, and, and as the Attorney General has made very clear, um, money laundering is the back end of organized crime, and that is what's fueling our opioid addiction, our fentanyl, you know, the supply. It's organized crime behind all of this. So it, the adage is go after the money, and that's, that's what you do when you pursue money laundering. Uh, the ports, you know, is basically an adjunct to this whole issue. It's about uh, product moving back and forth. So... You know, they're, they're both real real issues. Uh, my focus was on, on the money, not so much the ports, but I did feel compelled to put something in the report about it because it is a concern. It does sound like a huge concern, especially now that it's being brought to light by the mayor of Delta and the police chief in Delta there too. So how much of an effort do you think it would take then, Peter, to, to put another you know police force back into effect there? Well, we had a police force before, so, yeah. I mean, that is one option. Another option is integrated units, but if you're going to do integrated units, you want to make sure that these are dedicated units that are going to be around for a while and not short-term funding, and that 
tends to be the problem. The IHIT model, for example, the integrated homicide team in the lower mainland is a model that seems to work. It's, it's a dedicated integrated unit that has lasted for quite some time. Um, but you also have examples of ad hoc units put together to deal with a particular issue or concern, and then they evaporate. And that's what we saw with the casinos, where there was a casino uh, unit uh, in the RCMP that lasted for about five years, and then, you know, it was abolished. So, you know, integrated units have their place. It, it's all about structure. It's about your commitment and, and those sorts of things. But if government wants to do these things, obviously they can do it. The other part of all of this is we do have CBSA, which is a very vibrant, law enforcement unit but cbsa is not a police force and um so you know i am sure we would want to also look at their authorities and their resourcing um and that's not something that was covered was part of my mandate right but clearly though this is an issue twice now we've seen this brought up both by you and now today uh by delta that needs to be dealt with do you think no doubt. I wouldn't have brought it up if I, you know, if I didn't think it was something that people should be looking at, of course. Well, now we are definitely doing that. Peter, thank you for your time. Well, you're most welcome. All the very best to you. Thanks. That is Peter German, a former RCMP deputy commissioner and author of those dirty money reports into money laundering. Those reports raised concerns about the lack of security or or second look, really closer inspection of the containers at our ports uh, right across the country. Delta Port, obviously a big concern. We're heard today from George Harvey, the mayor, and the police chief, Neil Dubord. And in fact, the Delta Mayor George Harvey says he plans to bring this issue up at the Union of BC Municipalities meeting that is happening later this month. He says he'd like to lobby the federal and provincial governments for renewed funding, more funding on this. So we will keep you posted on how that goes. Well, this is a headline for a story that I would definitely click on. The Asian giant hornet has been found in BC for the first time. And even the province now is asking anyone who might have seen these to report the sighting because they're trying to track where they are in BC. How big are they? What are the concerns here? Oh, I have so many questions. That's why we're going to be talking with Gail Wallen right now, the Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of BC. Gail, thanks for joining us. No problem. Nice to be here. Well, first off, you have a very interesting job. Uh, the Invasive Species Council of BC, where did that come from? I came about because some uh, people got together and said invasive species or invasive weeds are a really big problem to British Columbia. And one of the things that's unique about invasive species is you can't fix it by yourself. We actually all have to work together. So one of the calls from BC citizens was to establish a nonprofit organization that brought together people of all stripes and and work approaches to work together to protect our BC from invasive species. So it was a pretty neat uh, project. It brings all sorts of people together. And that means that you're the one who gets to talk about the invasive Asian giant hornet. The giant hornet today or the European fire ants, it'll be northern pike or goldfish. Yeah, it's great because it's really diverse. (laughs) Great? I don't know. Tell me about this Asian giant hornet, Gail. What is the deal with these things? So... Like many new invasives, and this is a, an, uh, the giant hornet does not belong to British Columbia. It's been newly found here. And one of the things we know about species from far away is they don't come over to British Columbia with their predators or, or their normal life cycle. And there's so many of them that can become established and actually take over our environment. So this is actually, in some ways, it's a really good story because people were alert and noticed that this 
uh, Hornet didn't look like it belonged and reported it. So we're hoping that this is at a really early stage and we'll be able to take action on it. So that's uh, that's the good news. It doesn't belong here. We don't want it here. Um, it has a pretty major impact on uh, flying insects, particularly bees and pollinators, which are really important to British Columbia. So we're wanting to make sure that we're ho- that people can help us report and find this. Hopefully we won't find any more, but if, we, if they're out there, we want people to report them. Okay, and so how destructive could this thing be if we don't do this? It's, it's actually, it, it's a very aggressive hornet. They call it an apex predator, so it's a very, it will feed on a lot of our pollinators and bees. So the impact will be, um, could be big to our ecological cycle that, we, that our, our habitats are always balanced. There's always species that are keeping other ones in check. So this will disrupt that cycle. I mean, yes, it has also a threat to people for for stinging, et cetera, but it's a major threat to bees and pollinators in particular, which are really important for food production, uh, plants, et cetera. So it's it's, uh, important to keep that balance. So the concern with this is it's been reported in Nanaimo. Um, We don't know whether it's very broader spread than that. So there's a call out to get people to look for a hornet that looks unusual, and we've got lots of pictures on the website, and then report it in. And if you can, take a picture, or if you've got one that's uh, some people have had them under the glasses and, really? and in bottles, because then we can get it analyzed and determine what it is for sure. So. Okay, how would we recognize that it might be different? Like, what would be unusual about it? Uh, first of all, they're large, and they have a large orange, orange sorry, large orange head and black eyes and not all uh, of your wasp or hornets will have that so if you take a look you'll see actually on our website we'll have some uh, ones that are separate but if you see one something that's different you haven't seen before it looks big um, you know like it's three to four centimeters uh, in long um, or a little bit longer if it's got an orange head take a picture Put it, trap it if you can, send it in, report it, and then we'll have the specialists identify it. Now, do we know how it might have come here? Do we, do we have a speculation as to why it might have come here? We don't know, um, and that's often the case with most new invasive species. We speculate that it's actually come in through trade or travel. Um, just because it is from Asia, uh, today people can, can move um, products and uh, products and trade, and they can travel much quicker from one part of the world to the other, which gives a chance for insects to travel with them, uh, often undetected in their luggage or their transport, and then arrive here and still be living and breathing. So it's most likely to come in through tra- trade and travel, so we don't know that. But the flip side of that is if you are traveling, whether it's traveling within BC or traveling beyond, again, it's really, really important that you make sure that you're, you're don't have any hitchhikers that are moving with you, whether they're insects mm. or, or plants or whatever. So we have a number of programs where we work with the public to make sure that they play clean and go, that they're not transporting unwanted hitchhiking uh, species or plants. Right. Okay. So then, Gail, what is the website that you mentioned there? Because now I want to go take a look at these pictures and make sure that I, if I see one of these, I report it. So yeah. what is the name of the website? So bcinvasives.ca is our website, and we have links to a wide range of invasive species there. So go to bcinvasives.ca, and we'll be linked over to government's uh, website. But you can also find other interesting ones like European fire ants, which have been a big one down in the lower, lower mainland and uh, Vancouver Island. But you'll find other ones there that are of interest. And 
again, many of these invasive species have been brought to government's attention because people have been dedicated and paying attention, whether they're a naturalist, whether they're a beekeeper, whether they're an outdoor enthusiast. They're seeing something that's different right. and unique, and they're reporting it. And that's the way we can protect British Columbia. All right, sounds good. Gail, thank you so much for your time. Okay, well, thank you. And we don't uh, wish that you'll find another hornet, but send us some pictures and we'll <laughs> okay. let you know what they are. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Gail. That's Gail Wallen, Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of BC. Well, today on Science with Simi, I have to say, uh, this is probably the youngest guest that we have ever had on Science with Simi ever since we started doing this. Maybe one of the younger guests that we've had on the show, really. She's about 13 years old, and yet... Her research was published earlier this year in Canada's biggest peer-reviewed journal about pediatrics. That's impressive, right? And it all has to do with hand dryers. You may have heard this story earlier this year. It's a young girl named Nora Keegan. She's from Calgary. And she found out that the volume of those hand dryers, like, you know, when you're in a public washroom and you use the hand dryer and it's so loud, like it always jars me when I hear that turn on. Well, she found and discovered and measured that the volume of those hand dryers is actually damaging to children's ears. And she did so much research so thoroughly uh, and did such a good job of it in her study that a lot of people have paid attention, including Dyson. And they're the ones who make a lot of those hand drivers. So we had a heck of a time trying to track Nora down and even book her for this segment. Took us a long time to do that because we wanted to talk to her for Science with Simi and find out, you know, how did she get started on this? Like, What happens now? We finally had a chance to catch up with her this morning. Here's our conversation. Well, Nora, thanks so much for joining us today. I have to say, you are a very hard person to pin down. You've had a very busy summer, haven't you? Yes, I have. Ever since we heard about your amazing research that was published in uh, the Canadian journal Pediatrics and Child Health, what have what have things been like for you? Well, it's kind of been like the same as always. I've just been doing the same things, except that now people are interested in my research. And tell me about your research. Well, so I um, measured lots of different hand dryers for their noise levels, and I found that, especially on children types, the noise levels can actually damage children's hearing. All right, now let's talk about how you got this idea, Nora, because I am with you. When I heard and read this story, I thought, I agree. I find those hair dryers in public bathrooms to be so loud. How did you decide to do something about this? Well, I found that sometimes after I used a hand dryer, my ears would start ringing. And I also found that lots of times in washroom, kids would be using hand dryers. And then their parents would just be acting as if, like, their kid was overreacting. But then I was thinking, like, what if the kid isn't overreacting? And they're not just overreacting because of the noise. And what if it actually is too loud for the children's hearing? And also at this point, I was looking for a science fair project. So I was like, hey, I found that I've seen that hand dryers might be too loud, so this could be my science fair project. Right. You were nine years old when you started this, though, right? Yes, that's correct. And how did you know how to do this research? Like, how did you decide, that, okay, this is what it's, I'm going to do? Well, I just sort of went for it and figured things out along the way. 
really. So I would like, for instance, I wanted to measure our children's heights, but then I like had to figure out what the children's heights were, or I wasn't sure how manufacturers measure them. So then I researched that as well. So I didn't really, I didn't know anything about hand dryers or noise or measuring noise at all to begin this. So I just figured everything out along the way. Right. So did you actually have to buy like a decibel meter? Yes, that's correct. And tell me about what happened when you started like going to restrooms and measuring this. Like, what did you find? Well, I found that oftentimes parents would like see me there and they look curious. So I tell them about what they were doing, what I was doing. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, my kid hates these hand dryers. Or I would see more kids like not wanting to use the hand dryers. And it just made me want to like keep going and research even more. So I found it very interesting just because I saw even more how many, like how much people thought that hand dryers were too loud. Right. And so were your parents driving you around to different places to try to find a hair, like a hand dryer to do this work? Yes. They drove me around to different places. And sometimes we find many and sometimes we get as but. Okay, so when you it just did all, keep going, it just keeps going. When you did all these measurements, Nora, what did you find? What was the conclusion of your work? I found that hand dryers were dangerous to children's hearing. And another thing that I found that I thought was quite interesting is that almost in all cases, the manufacturers stated that the hand dryers operated at a certain noise level but they actually operated way louder than that because I guess test them in a real life scenario with in a washroom where I guess the sound, the sound was reflected off the walls. But I thought that it was interesting because I thought that companies should be measuring their hand dryers in a way that will actually be a real life scenario because it doesn't matter what the, how loud it is in a special sound studio. It measures how loud it matters how loud it is in the real life. Right. And so now it's been four years since you started this. Where is your research at right now? What more are you doing? Well, I haven't really saw what I'm going to do next, but I think that I will try and go to Health Canada and talk to them about like having regulations for hand dryers. Also, Dyson has called me, which is a hand dryer company. So um, they wanted to contact me. So I think I'm going to contact them soon. And I think I'm going to ask them to change how they operate their hand dryers. That would be how they test their hand dryers. That would be a pretty big deal if you could get a company like Dyson to change their hand dryers. Nora, that's impressive. Don't you think so? Yes. I really hope that they will listen to me, but... And do you think parents should listen to their kids too? Like it's not just kids whining about this stuff. Yes, I think parents should listen to their kids. And I think that oftentimes parents think that kids are just overreacting or they're not like thinking things right. Right. But I think another thing that this project has taught me is that I'm not sure I would have discovered this if I was an adult because kids hear it more. So I think another thing is like parents just listen to your kids and if they have an idea like let them look at it and also if your kid says something like take it seriously well Nora that is excellent advice listen good luck with your research 
Thank you very much. That's Nora Keegan. She's the young, teenaged author of a study connecting hand dryer volume to hearing loss in children. And you know, having her describe it to me, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Of course, kids would be more impacted by it. They're at the level of the hand dryer. And they're already so loud as adults, right? But we are much higher. And of course, it impacts. And does it need to be that loud? And if she can get that change, you know, she's going to be meeting with Dyson or they're going to reach out to her. Um, she's a hero. Absolutely. I think she is amazing. A team of search and rescue volunteers from the Burnaby Fire Department has been working really hard to try to find the three missing Canadians in the Bahamas. And they were missing as a result of Hurricane Dorian uh, when that storm moved through. Now, we w- we'd heard that one of them had been located and the team had had a lot to do with that. That was great. But we are learning some more good news about this, about the other Canadians are missing. And in fact, this is just new, actually. And here to tell us more is Jeff Clark, president of Local 323 of the Burnaby Firefighters Association. Jeff, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Uh, We're glad to be there. Yeah, tell us about the update. Do we have more information about these missing Canadians? Yes, uh, last night um, our crew on the ground found out from one of the inspectors of the Bahamian police, Inspector Neely, who had been working close with our members to locate um, Carrie Lowe, and they were able to find her last night in Treasure Cay and con- contacted our members and, and made them aware of that. Oh, that's fantastic. So one of the Canadians has been uh, found. Is she okay? Is everything all right? She's okay. She's quite uh, traumatized. Um, but um, she's at the clinic where our, our crews were at, and um, they will be meeting her again shortly. Um, but we're very uh, proud to announce as well that Yves Bouchard, the other Canadian, our crew with Captain Ian Hetherington, went up to Treasure Cay, and they located him this morning oh. in a secondary location, and he's alive and well. So all three Canadians have been accounted for. That is amazing, Jeff. That is really good news. Can you give us an idea of what this work has been like for the Burnaby firefighters? Like, what have they had to do? Well, I'm going to have one of them give you a call in in a few minutes. I've been in contact with them. Our our biggest concern was there's a big storm coming in, and we're trying to get them off the island so that they can get home on uh, early sa- Sunday morning at 1 a.m. They're arriving home. And so we've been on the phone trying to contact through the National Emergency Management Agency, and we're very fortunate with the cooperation we had. Um, They put us in contact with the um, Force Chief Woods of the Bahamian Defense Force, and right away he said, you know what, I can get your guys off that island in an hour, two hours, whatever you need. So we contacted our members, and they had also been in contact with Commander Anderson of the United States Air Force, who was able, or sorry, United States Coast Guard, who was able to um, get them out of there tomorrow morning at 9.30. But because of the storm coming in, our guys will be going out um, at 5 o'clock tonight and heading back to Nassau. Okay, so that's that's good news though, right? Like the work is done. They did find all three Canadians. It's great, great news. They, they were looking for, um, I mean, there's going to, who knows what the death toll is going to be, but... Um, they can talk more on it because they're there and they'll be giving you a call, but it's it's going to be very high. And mm. we put them in there for five to seven days and we try to get them out of there. So they'll be coming home. Uh, we've been fortunate and and our members are, are very, very proud to say that 
when we had um, Cafe Pacific, JetBlue, Milwaukee Tools, Pacific Blue Cross, Rogers and Telus all came on board to help out Good. our team whatever way we needed. So um, they're they're doing well, and we're looking forward to seeing them. Nobody's sick. Everybody's everybody's in great shape, but uh, you know they're they're exhausted. Well, the news is good for the three Canadians. Uh, Thank you, Jeff, for that. We look forward to hearing more about this. Okay, thank you very much, Simi. Thanks for your time. That's Jeff Clark, president of Local 323 of the Burnaby Firefighters Association. Uh, they had gone down to the some of the islands in the Bahamas there in light of what happened, the awful devastation and destruction of Hurricane Dorian, to try to help out to find the missing Canadians. And as you just heard Jeff say, mission accomplished this morning. They did locate the third Canadian there, so all three have been found, and they are okay. They are now recovering. Of course, the news not as good for so many other people. Uh, about 2,500 people are still located as or at, listed as missing in uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian. And as Jeff mentioned, there there are concerns about a brewing storm system, a tropical depression that is now kind of gathering in the waters off the Bahamas again. There's concern that heavy rain is going to come to that area. You'll be hearing more about that in the news. As you've been hearing today in the news and as we have been talking about, we've gotten new figures on the speculation and vacancy tax here in BC. If you ask the finance minister, Carol James, she'll say, oh, it is working just the way we intended. Well, they intended this tax to help with the housing affordability issue in this province. They wanted to target foreign and domestic speculators who own residences in BC, but live outside the province. So let's talk more about this now with the help of Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, who has been covering this story today. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi. It was a pretty lengthy news conference this morning. First of all, we had a technical briefing for about half an hour, and then Finance Minister Carol James came on uh, to give some comments and then answer questions for about another half hour. So it was very detailed and technical, which was great for reporters. And the gist of it, as you said, was the minister saying that the tax is working the way the B.C. government intended it to work. Uh, Carol James saying about 12,000 homeowners are paying that tax, and last year it generated $115 million. And the government, Simi, is forecasting revenue of $185 million going forward into next year because the tax is going from 0.5% of assessed value up to 2%. So that's going to be another hit. Um, she says the tax, this is key, has also lowered housing prices by a whopping 8%. And she says that's not only houses themselves, but also townhomes as well. And all this money that the government is collecting, Simi, is uh, going into a separate account. It is called the Housing Initiative Account. And it's a fund where cities can access this money and put it towards new housing projects in their communities. But of course, they have to apply for it and make a case for it. And uh, Carol James telling us that uh, she is actually meeting with some of the mayors today to start that dialogue. And another key part of this is that 99.8% of British Columbians are not paying this tax. Here is more, Simi, of what the Minister Carol James had to say this morning at her news conference. Based on the data, first-year declarations, the tax is working as we intended. 99.8% of British Columbians are not paying the speculation and vacancy tax. It is, in fact, targeting speculators people living outside of British Columbia, and it's also helping to encourage homes to be used to house people, not to be used 
for speculation not to be used to create challenges in our communities. And it's also generating revenue that will be used for affordable housing in our communities. So overall, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic when you look at the price moderation we're seeing. We're certainly seeing a step in the right direction. And we've been clear all along. Our government will not rely on a propped up real estate market to be able to manage the economy. That's not good for British Columbia families, and it's certainly not good for the economy. Now, that was Carol James, the Finance Minister. Janet, certainly some interesting numbers in there as well about how few British Columbians are actually paying this tax in comparison to the 1.6 million homeowners who had to fill the forms out. Absolutely. Uh, More than 15% of properties owned by foreign homeowners in BC paying that speculation tax. But as you say, 99.8% are not paying the tax. Another interesting part of this too, Simi, that caught my attention this morning in the news conference, I'm sure you recall the mayors of Belcara and Kelowna, very unhappy with this tax because of vacation properties in their communities. Um, And we also heard from a man earlier this year in the community of Anmore. He had rented out his house, if you recall, to a group of people that the neighbors were not happy with. Oh, yeah. Um, The 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 owners blamed the speculation tax. They they said uh, people are having to rent out their homes now to anybody they can find in order to avoid the new speculation tax, and therefore it's causing some issues in some neighbourhoods. Here's how James responded to that concern. I understand that not everyone is going to agree with the direction that's being taken. I understand that people, uh, not everyone is going to to agree that this tax uh, will make a difference, but if you take a look at bringing in resources to be able to support affordable housing, if you look at the fact that the vast majority of British Columbians are not paying this tax, Uh, Over 99% of British Columbians are not paying this tax. We are doing what is necessary to be able to address the housing crisis. You know, that's such a tough one, Janet, for some of the neighbours, right? Because I guess Mm -hmm. their choice then is, it's an empty home most of the time. Do you want an empty home most of the time? Or do you want to have people coming and going, which also has problems? It is. And, and, and as we heard from, from, for instance, the people in Anmore, this, this homeowner, you know, he didn't necessarily want to rent out his property, but it was sort of grabbing anybody he could at the last minute. And, you know, we're hearing similar stories, I am anyways, uh, from homeowners in Surrey, too. They, they don't necessarily want to rent out their properties, but now they are be, because they don't want to pay this tax. And it is causing issues, I hear, in Surrey, too. Now, this is not factual. This is not information I'm getting from City Hall or any level of government. I'm just hearing it throughout the community from people uh, because they don't want to pay the tax. And it is causing issues in in some neighborhoods because of certain renters. And um, how do you solve that problem? I don't know. I don't know. You know, how do you do it? Vancouver had that problem too, right? That's why they brought in the empty homes tax Mm -hmm. because so many homes were empty and they thought better to have people in it. But then you run into these other issues. So uh, it sounds like though the, the government is pleased with what this tax has done. Certainly sounds that way. You know, it will be interesting also to hear from the mayors uh, of the impacted cities how they think things are going and whether they will be able to access this new fund with $115 million now available for new housing projects. How soon are those projects going to get off the ground? Uh, Is the money easily accessible to these communities? What stipulations are in place to access the money? And how soon will these projects be built? All interesting questions going forward, Simi.
Simi. They are. All right, Janet, thank you very much. Thank you, Simi. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter, who's been covering the story today about the speculation tax, the speculation vacancy tax here in B.C. So in California, they are once again going somewhere that no other jurisdiction has gone before. Lawmakers in that state have given final approval on a bill that is aimed at protecting the so-called gig economy workers. These are the lots and lots of people who say work in ride hailing or they're food delivery drivers for all those different apps out there. But reporter Alex Stone says one of the biggest players in the marketplace is already indicating they don't intend to comply. The bill, which only needs Governor Gavin Newsom's signature to become law, mandates that companies that use freelance or independent contract workers classify them as employees and give them protections of employees like minimum wage if the companies control how they work and if the worker is central to the company's business. But Uber is arguing the law won't impact its business and that it will continue to treat drivers as independent contractors. Uber is arguing it's a technology company and the drivers are outside of Uber's business. It's a fight Uber will probably have to make in court. Alex Stone, ABC News, Los Angeles. So what does this mean for other jurisdictions? We wanted to talk about the wider kind of consequences or ramifications of this. Joining us now is Sylvia Fuller, a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. Sylvia, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Now, what do you think about this type of legislation or what California is trying to do? Is this feasible, do you think? I think it's absolutely feasible, and it's certainly something that a lot of jurisdictions are grappling with as we are seeing the increase in these kinds of companies that are using so-called independent contractors as a key part of their business model, largely because it allows them to offload some of the risks and the costs as much as possible onto the workers rather than themselves and avoid, you know, some of those pesky regulations that would otherwise um, cut into their profits. So, California is not alone, obviously, in struggling with these issues, and they are important for us to get a hold of if we are going to think about how do we provide minimum protections and standards for all workers in our economies. Right, because originally these jobs were thought of as kind of not full-time, just people working on the side, but is that actually realistic? Is that the type of jobs we're talking about here? Well, it's a broad swath. (laughs) When we're talking about the gig economy, uh, you know, it's notoriously difficult to really get a handle on exactly who's working in it and how much and so forth. Um, So for some workers... Absolutely. It's it's work on the side, and it's particularly for workers whose other work um, tends to be, you know, poorly paid, have irregular schedules, and so they are sort of trying to take up some of that slack to build baseline economic security for themselves by having a bit of freelancing on the side, on the side through these platforms. That doesn't mean that everything is great, because, of course, we have to think about, you know, why are these workers feeling that they are compelled to do that in the first place? It's partly because, you know, other regular jobs are not providing the economic security that uh, they otherwise that they otherwise need. So it doesn't mean that if it's on the side that the worker is overall doing fine in terms of their in terms of their economic security. And then, of course, there are a lot of workers for whom this is their their main job and they are not able to depend on some other uh, workplace that is going to provide them with, you know, sick pay and vacation pay and pensions Mm -hmm. and, and all the rest. So it it really does matter. So in the beginning, when this started, it seemed like a nice idea. 
And do you think now it just that's just too big, too wieldy, and there's too much profit being made in some cases for this to be realistic for workers? Well, we've had a lot of shifts in our economy and in our labor conditions over time, and it's really important that our labor standards shift and uh, keep up with changes in the broader economy. The kinds of rules that were adequate for protecting workers in the past are not necessarily going to provide the same level of protection going forward. And the case with a lot of these, uh, you know, online uh, gig economy jobs, and we can the ride-hailing uh, companies are certainly a big part of this, is that their business model is premised on classifying people as independent contractors. And what that means in practice and why they're doing that is that independent contractors are placed outside of our minimum employment regulations. So they're not protected in terms of minimum wages, sick leave, overtime, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, all those kinds of things that the rest of our social safety net and our employment regulations um, are concerned with providing for workers. So they're taking people and they're putting them outside of those regulations that, you know, were designed when they thought about, oh, independent contractors, you know, shouldn't fit. They were really thinking about folks who had more control over their work, had tended to be more highly paid. You know, these are folks who they might prototypically think working for multiple different clients, having a lot of control over which contracts they take or they don't take and the conditions of those contracts. That's not really the case for these gig economy workers. And what it means is that a lot of people are working in conditions that don't provide a baseline of economic security. Right. Okay. So California does, is California usually like where these things kind of start? Well, I think California, um, you know, has been a leader in many respects, but in general, I would say that, you know, when we're thinking about employment standards generally, uh, one would hope that usually Canada is, is actually better <laughs> than, than the U.S. We don't tend to look uh, to the United States for models for, you know, how to provide decent working conditions for folks. So I'm very happy to see them taking this lead. I do think that, you know, California has been a bellwether. And really, you know, they're, the, they're sort of ground zero for a lot of these technology, right. so-called technology companies. So perhaps it's not surprising. But, you know, it's important for us to all look around and learn from what's happening in other jurisdictions, particularly now in BC is we're, you know, making, making changes mm-hmm. so that we can, you know, av- we, we know about the negative consequences. So let's not just go forward as if they don't exist. Let's try and fix the problems. But isn't it interesting that these technology companies don't feel like they should comply or have to comply, even though the labor market is so tight right now? Well, the labor market can be tight, but even in a tight labor market, there are folks who have, you know, limited power within it, right, who have a harder time finding employment, finding well-paid employment, um, whether it's because they don't have a lot of skills that are socially recognized as valuable in the labor market, whether there's other vulnerabilities, you know, that that are in their lives that make them uh, more you know, more having to sort of accept whatever whatever work is on the go. There's always going to be people in those situations. So I do think that it's true in a tight labor market. You you know, you might expect there to be more power for workers. Um, Uber has been, for example, lowering its you know its compensation rates uh, for workers over time as they're you know trying to make themselves more uh, you know cheaper and cheaper for consumers. Um, and they've been doing that unilaterally. Whether they can continue to do that and keep their drivers in a tighter labor market remains to be seen. 
sustain. But nonetheless, even in a tight labor market, it's important that we provide some basic uh, rules and guidelines so that, you know, workers who really, you know, have very asymmetrical power in these relationships have some protection. Uber doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them whether, you know, any one individual worker or not sticks with their platform. And it's very difficult under our current system for workers to unionize and to have, you know, an organized opposition to them. In fact, they're not allowed to do that if they're independent, if they're independent contractors. And on the other side, you know, Uber sort of unilaterally sets those wage rates, sets all those terms and conditions. So, you know, without some broader oversight, workers are in a very difficult case um, situation trying to negotiate with Uber, especially if they've, you know, figured this is going to be an important part of their employment plan and they've gone out and they've, you know, leased a car at high rates to be able to yeah. do this work. They've got sunk costs. They can't just walk away, right? So we need to we need to think about that and not assume that somehow they're this powerful independent contractor who can pick and choose their clients. It's clearly not the case. It's just so interesting that we're listening to this and talking about this, and we still don't have this here. So workers here haven't really experienced that yet, but do you think this might make people a little more on guard about taking this up? I think the solution can't be at the individual level. I mean, it might make individual uh, folks who are contemplating possibly working for you know, Uber or Lyft or whoever comes in uh, to provide these services under the new regulations. Sure, it might affect individual choices, but we can't rely on that in setting labor protections. We need to be more organized. We need to look at this from a policy and a regulatory perspective to ensure that we have the appropriate guidelines in place so that... If and when these companies come into our province, they do so in a way that is not just undermining, you know, employment conditions and economic security for people, aside from all the other potential issues around congestion, environment, and so forth. Right. Okay, Sylvia, thank you so much. You're welcome. That's Sylvia Fuller, Professor of Sociology at UBC. Such an interesting discussion. Right now, though, we've been getting some good news out of the Bahamas having to do with the three Canadians who were reported missing last week in the wake of Hurricane Dorian. team of Burnaby firefighters flew down there last weekend, and they have been working closely with authorities down there to try to locate those missing Canadians. And guess what? We found out a short time ago that the team did it just this morning, managed to find the third Canadian, and everyone is okay. So let's get some details on that now uh, from Lieutenant Scott Reddy, who is with the Burnaby Fire Department, and he's actually joining us from Abaco Island in the Bahamas right now. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being here. No problem, Simi. Okay, listen, congratulations. Tell me what happened this morning. Uh, Yeah, today was a big day. You know, we started off... uh, heading up to Treasure Key because we still wanted to identify the two Canadians that had been reported to us as missing. And so that was uh, our main targets uh, today and our main task. And so that's what we did. And uh, shortly after we got up there, we actually were able to find out that uh, Carrie Lowe was actually still alive and she had been checking in at the local shelter and she was okay. And then uh, we actually found Eve Bouchard and uh, some of the guys took a picture with him. Uh, Eve was found by our Bravo team, and not uh, with Ian Hetherington and uh, another group. So we split into two teams, and we got lucky. We found them both. That is amazing. Congratulations. Great work. Um, Scott, can you give us an idea of what the conditions are like down there right now? Yeah, the conditions are still pretty horrendous. Uh, you know, there is no ground cover whatsoever. Uh, you know, there is... Uh, a little bit of confusion 
amongst uh, some of the uh, relief agencies. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're just trying to get uh, as much as they can done with the resources that they have, and they're actually spread pretty thin. So it was good that we were down here to help them, and we just tried to plug in wherever we could and, uh, you know, rely on our skills too. And we were able to get uh, a lot of good work done. You know, we uh, had some good searching days, and uh, we also, a few of the guys, I don't know if you heard, but a few of the guys adopted some dogs. I did not hear that. Tell me about that. Are there lots of kind of lost pets wandering around? There are, yeah. There's a lot of pets that have just been abandoned or they've either lost their owners. And so uh, we actually, uh, one of our awesome on-the-ground contacts was able to hook us up with a bunch of kennels. And so we, uh, the guys took that on as part of a side task and they did a great job. So, and one of them, I think one or two of them are actually going to bring their uh, dogs home. Uh, Scott, I'm going to have to ask you to send me some pictures. Oh, for sure. They've got pictures, yeah. Oh, I think I, actually there's another news agency that has a picture of uh, Scott Murchison. Right. And he's one of the firefighters that was on the job uh, or on the deployment here, and he's uh, going to adopt one of those dogs. Oh, that would be adorable. I mean, we, I think we look for good news in light of the horrible things that have happened down there. How would you describe? Sure. How would you describe the destruction down there? And how are the people doing who live there? Well, there's not really many people actually left living here right now because of the destruction. They have nothing left to live in. And so uh, if you can sort of imagine, it's basically a massive pile of, uh, you know, corrugated metal, two-by-fours and plywood. And that was uh, part of the difficulty that we encountered because it was very tough to traverse uh, rubble piles and do it safely with the team. And so uh, we had to be very careful. It was slow going. But, uh, you know, we, we got uh, several hits and, and we were able to uh, succeed in some areas. We bogged down in some others, but we just persevered and the guys did a, a great job. But, uh, yeah, the destruction is something that none of us had ever seen before. It's just uh, it's pretty horrific. And you're on your way back home, right? Getting out before that next storm kind of comes through there? That's why we had to ma- uh, change our travel arrangements. The guys are sitting right here on the side watching me because we have to get to the airport right now because there's a Bahamian chopper actually waiting for us to go. Okay, you better go then, Scott. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate (laughs) that. We can talk a little more when I get back. Sounds like a plan. Good luck. Safe travels. Uh, And thank you very much. That's Lieutenant Scott Ruddy. He's with the Burnaby Fire Department. He was joining us live from Marsh Harbor on Abaco Island in the Bahamas. Uh, They did a great job. All three Canadians who were missing, they found them, uh, tracked them down as of this morning, and they are getting out before the next storm is going through there. This tropical depression heading that way is likely to bring more heavy rain to that area. That is not good news for that part of those islands that are part of the Bahamas in that area there.